sweetest swing in baseball. It's Ken Griffey Jr. Left side, low, it was just beautiful. Most spellbinding guitarist, B.B. King. Bends that high E string perfectly and makes your face go, And I know there's some debate about this, but the most jaw-dropping shot in basketball, there's only one Michael Jordan. (laughs) I knew it. It's amazing to see somebody in their sweet spot, right? When they're doing what they were created to do. But what's even more amazing than that is how they make their decision look so effortless. How does Ken Griffey decide to pull the trigger when a baseball is hurtling toward his head at 90 miles an hour. Like in the middle of a blues riff, BB's fingers magically find that one spot on the fretboard. Michael Jordan, he's busting it down the court. Five defenders would love to shut him down and he finds the moment of clarity and boom. Decisiveness, it would seem, makes all the difference. But decisiveness is a tough one, isn't it? It's tough for me. It's a skill that I am eager to develop and scared to death to actually use. I remember when I was 15, I was a Little League umpire for one game. (laughs) One game. In the middle of the first inning, I called a seven-year-old out at first base and what felt like a sea of 350 angry parents behind me yelling at me. I wanted to curl up into a ball in a puddle of people-pleasing, insecurity-laced adolescent shame. Just guessing here, but I think many of us experience faith the same way. We'd love to have that conversation, but what if they reject me? We'd love to engage in that mission opportunity, but am I really ready? We'd love to step out in faith, but we walk in insecurity. And so many of us live our lives where what's possible seems hopelessly distant from what's probable. And we hang our heads silently envying the artful creators and the decision makers. So for the past month, we've been in our fall sermon series called Vintage Faith, and hopefully you've been tracking along, but if you've missed it or you're just joining us, here's the idea. Beneath all the hum and the buzz, when all the faddish stuff and the hype dissipates, what does it really mean to live a faithful life? The writer of Hebrews helps us answer that question. By the time he gets to chapter 11, the writer has lined up a cast of characters that bear witness to how good the faithful life can be. Adam's son, Abel, he had an obedient faith. Abraham had a remarkable faith. Sarah had a patient faith. And last week, Pastor James pointed us to a generational faith. And this morning, we're going to look at the next character in the parade. Moses is the poster child for the intersection of insecurity and decisiveness. Like so many characters in Hebrews 11, he's deeply flawed, profoundly insecure, completely unable, but God uses him anyway. And I'm very thankful for that. Moses is one of the most defining characters in the Bible. He's one of the most striking characters in history. And in our text this morning, just a six-verse slice of Hebrews 11, we're going to take a look at a few characteristics of decisive faith. 
Moses' story teaches us that a faith that makes a decision is a life that makes a difference. And so look with me, if you would, Hebrews 11, we're going to take a look in verse 23, and we're going to see the first characteristic of a decisive faith. A decisive faith risks precious things. A decisive faith risks precious things. Let's take a look in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, here's the crazy thing. Moses' story, his faithful journey, actually starts before he was born. And if that sounds like a crazy way to start a story, it's because it is. So what's with Moses' parents, and what's the deal with this king's edict business? So here's what's going on. God's people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, have been living in Egypt for generations. And Pharaoh is pretty cool with having them there. There's no problems. But over time, they become so numerous that Pharaoh actually begins to fear them. And that fear mushrooms into a paranoia, where in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh orders every male child of every Hebrew family thrown into the Nile River. This is the first, and if you know your history, certainly not the last, act of systematic genocide against God's people. And so Moses' parents are left with a choice. Obey Pharaoh, essentially leaving our son to die, or find an alternative. And so with the threat of their son's death hanging over their heads, they build a basket, line it with pitch, put Moses in, and send him down the river. I can't imagine that. When Joseph was a toddler, we lost him in Chick-fil-A for like 30 seconds, and I freaked out. (laughs) This is a whole other level. But here's the crazy thing. Moses' parents are commended for this. Like, really? That's strange. What's that about? So let me ask you a second. Think about what your greatest hope is. What's your greatest hope? If you're a parent in this room, it could be that your kids walk with Jesus and do incredible things in their life, right? That's what I want for my kids. If you're a student in this room, maybe it's that like when you step into your role and your vocation that you can leave your mark on the world. That's awesome, right? For others, your hope is that your legacy will extend beyond your years. All of those things are great hopes. So let's test that a bit. You want to know what your greatest fears are? Just look at the underside of your hopes. So parents, if I told you your children will not walk with Jesus when they're older, that would crush you. Students, if I said, you will be completely anonymous. No one will know you. That's terrifying. Or if your legacy only was your life and nothing after that, those realities would crush you. It's important to realize what Moses' parents were actually doing. They weren't just giving up on their precious son. They were giving up on a precious promise. In all his dealings with his people, God promises the same thing. He says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a savior, a king. I'm going to make you a family. It's like this constant drumbeat that reverberates all throughout the Old Testament. And these two nameless, powerless, insignificant, otherwise forgettable new parents, part of a people on the edge of genocidal extinction, are waiting in the water going, okay, God, Tell me you've got this. Have you ever been there? 
Sure you have. Pharaoh's command hits on two levels. One, profoundly personal. He says, my son, like, this is our only son. Are you kidding me, God? This is sick and this is wrong. I'm going to lose my mind. How does mom sleep that night? And as terrifying as that is, there's a second layer to this. Our people, like, you promised us sand on the seashore and stars in the sky, and now, like, the whole, every male child... Really? And so with one foot on faith and the other in fear, Moses' parents send out their three-year-old son on the waves, half of their heart believing God's got this, and the other half going, maybe that's it. Here's why this matters. God is in the business of replacing our want to control our future with our need to trust his goodness. Tell me that doesn't show up later in Moses' life. So that's the first characteristic of a decisive faith. A decisive faith risks precious things. Let's keep going. Take a look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Here's the second characteristic of a decisive faith. A decisive faith refuses passing things. Decisive faith refuses passing things. For this scene in Moses' life, the writer of Hebrews drops us in around his 40th birthday. Moses has grown up in the house of Pharaoh. He's a prince who needs nothing. He's the most well-known person in the wealthiest kingdom in the world. At that time, Egypt was the big dog on the porch of the ancient world. Their economy was fueled by the Nile River Delta, which gave them crops like nobody else. Their military, they were the first army to have chariots and mounted horsemen, so they were dominant. Even their religion was trendy. There were other cultures that were trying to mimic their pantheon of gods because it just looked awesome. And at the head of all of that cultural table sits Moses. Adopted into Pharaoh's family in the royal line until something happened that rocked his world. You don't have to turn there, but I want to drop you in at Exodus chapter 2. Just listen to this. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, that's interesting, and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered him, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid. Now there's a lot we could say about this small but insignificant seam. I'll keep the comments brief. You could call it a crisis of faith. You could call it a defining moment. You could say he lost his mind. You could say he acted rashly, but when the dust settled, One thing is clear, Moses' days at the head of Pharaoh's table are over. Did you notice how the Exodus account calls the people? It says Moses went out among his people. It's like on one hand, Moses has the treasures of Egypt, job security. The security of Pharaoh's family, status and position. Love from all the people. 
He's got all the affirmation a man could want. And he sees one unjust act and he says, that. I want to be identified with that. We'll get to the consequences of that in just a minute. But let's zoom up and remember this part in God's story that through the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Remember, Hebrews is an apologetic for why Jesus is better. Okay, that's the point of that book. So why does the writer commend Moses for passing up all this great stuff? Because I love the world and all its shiny, sparkly things. And so do you. Christians who refuse passing things are walking billboards for the sufficiency of Jesus. They say, I don't need that. I don't want that. That won't satisfy me. That won't bring me lasting joy. It won't give me peace. I don't need your status. I don't need your position. I don't need your posturing. I don't need your wealth. I don't need your promises. I don't need your opinion. Why? Because Jesus is enough. And so I can refuse all of those things. This is David later when he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the household of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. This is Paul when he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And best of all, it's Jesus when he prays to the Father and he says, not my will, but your will be done. The Christian life, when it's lived in faith, is a life of thoughtful ambivalence. I choose not to care about bunches of things so I can care about one thing. All my chips are on Jesus. But here's the catch. What's passing is pretty darn fun. (laughs) And what's lasting is hard. It's hard to stop binge watching so Mandy and I can sit and have an actual conversation. It's hard to stop like wearing my thumb out looking for the next insightful comment on whatever platform you're cruising through so that I can just have 15 minutes of quiet. Moses gave up the treasures of Egypt for a footstool, and I fight to give God 15 minutes in a morning. It could be that one of the reasons why so many Christians struggle to live a decisive faith is because we're just simply distracted by things that don't matter. My mind goes to a quote by missionary Jim Elliott, and maybe you've heard it before. It says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I'm not trying to guilt you because I'm right there with you. A decisive faith refuses passing things, which leads to the next point. A decisive faith responds to broken things. Now this is where this kicks into gear. A decisive faith responds to broken things. Back in Hebrews 11, take a look in verse 25. This is the other side of the coin, okay? This is what Moses got instead when he refused everything. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, such a good phrase, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Falling from the highest seat in the ancient world to a footstool. The most remarkable thing that I see about Moses isn't that he did what he did, but that he chose to do it. And we have the same kind of choice every day. Moses rejected the consumerism and the self-centeredness that the world offered him for something 
infinitely more satisfying and intensely more painful. How many of you know that it hurts to care? Here's what, here's what I mean. Something happened to me this week that kind of rocked me. So um, last Sunday afternoon, I got news that a childhood friend um, had passed away. And he's 38 years old. And I mean, we were like backyard football together on Sundays, Cub Scouts, Cub Scouts at Greentown Elementary School, all the way through high school together. We were in band. Like he was one of the, like these five compadres that we just grew up with. And last Sunday, um, just like hanging out with some friends, dropped. And it, I mean, it really jacked with me. Like not just because he was 38 years old, but you go, how does that kind of thing happen? Like, that's not okay. It goes deeper than that, though. When I was 17, and you guys know a little bit about my story with this, like, Jesus started waking up inside of me, and, like, he became very real to me, and, like, God started to, the best way I can describe it is, like, life started, went from black and white to color, right? And, like, I couldn't see things the same way anymore, and my friend Nick was the first person that I remember feeling spiritually burdened for, and he had a lot of hurt, and it was way, way deep down inside of him. And I'm like, man, I just, I just think and love the guy. And so whenever I was, like, praying for my friends to come to know the Lord, like, Nick was always first on my mind. And he was the first person that I ever really shared Jesus with in a conversation. When you love someone, you take responsibility for them. And here's what Jesus is teaching me, just fresh out of the oven. The opposite of consumerism is not contribution. We say that all the time, right? Like, stop, stop consuming the church. Stop consuming Jesus. Contribute, right? But that's only, like, partly true. The opposite of consumerism isn't contribution. The opposite of consumerism is responsibility. When the lens of your world widens to include not just contribution to the movement of God, but responsibility for the movement of God, then you are close to the heart of God. Why did Nick's passing hurt me so much this week? Because I just stink and love him. And when you love someone and you take responsibility for them, it hurts. As soon as you say, my family is my responsibility, my friends are my responsibility, my neighbors are my responsibility, my city is my responsibility, as soon as you move in that direction, you open yourself up to a world of hurt and most people simply do not want it. We want to go, somebody else will figure it out. The pain is too great. The world is too dark. Give me my recliner and my chips. The crazy thing about Moses is he made the choice to be responsible. Like he saw something and he goes, no, this is not okay to me. He saw his countrymen and he said, I love them. My heart breaks for them and this is not okay. And I got to respond to this. I'm choosing to enter in. Here's the thing. You will never expect, accept responsibility for something that you don't love first. And you will never love something truly until your eyes are off of yourself. And like, guys, that's totally my story. There's 11 year slice of my life where I just loved nothing other than Brandon. I wanted to be well thought of, I wanted to be well liked. And when that flipped over, things started waking up and things started coming to life. All of a sudden, I couldn't see things the same way anymore. And that's what responsibility feels like. It's maddening. 
It's Jeremiah saying, if I won't speak in his name or if I won't go out there, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. I can't do it. You ever feel that way? Responsibility burns like a white, hot, beautiful, incandescent, terrifying, holy fire, reminding me that while I am bound to this world, I am bound for another world, and there are people here who I desperately love, who I deeply want to be there. And so here's my question. What are you willing to accept responsibility for? For Moses, it's a whole country. Who is it for you? Everybody has to answer that question for themselves, but a quick parting thought before we move on. It's usually simpler than you'd expect, and it's usually harder than you'd imagine. What are you willing to accept responsibility for? Because how you answer that question determines how you spend your life. That's the third characteristic of a decisive faith. A decisive faith responds to broken things. And so the next one follows a natural sequence. Verse 27, here you go. A decisive faith rejects fearful things. A decisive faith rejects fearful things. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. When you respond to broken things, you have consequences. It hurts. But then something else happens too. Fear shows up. Isn't that interesting? Let's pick up Moses' story. Okay? He responds to the brokenness around him. He loses his spot at Pharaoh's table. He spends the next 40 years wandering as a shepherd. Tell me that didn't teach him about leadership. And now 40 years later, he's 80. And God appears to him on a mountainside. And out of a burning bush, he calls Moses to go back to Egypt and lead his people out. And that takes us to Exodus 14. I just want to read this one again for you because it's so good. It offers us such an insight into what's going on. Exodus 14. Here's what the people say. The Egyptians pursued them. Okay, so God's people have left Egypt. Pharaoh's army's behind them. The Egyptians pursued him. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and his army overtook them and camped by the sea. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, now get this, this is the best ever. They go, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Thanks, Moses. (laughs) What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said To you in Egypt, leave us alone that we would serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, pay attention to Moses' incredibly God-centered response. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of our Lord which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Their jaws must have hit the ground. He could have said, guys, I've got this. I've led you this far, we're gonna get over it. He could have chastened them and said like, you faithless fools, But he doesn't do that. 
He could have backed down and go like, oh, I'm so insecure, I know, I did a bad. He doesn't do that. He does what every good godly leader does is he points his people to Jesus. And so what does the writer of Hebrews say about this whole thing? Verse 27, there it is again. He says, by faith, he led them out of Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Why wasn't Moses afraid? He had plenty of reason to be. He had Pharaoh's army in front of him, He had a discontented, grumbling people before him and insecurity inside him. And he gives his people a command, three commands, right? What's he say? He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of our Lord. Here's where this gets intensely personal and a little bit painful. If you want a decisive faith, you've got to stop accepting only the kind of assignments that you can control. Because the kind of victory that satisfies the longings of your heart is the kind of victory that you play no part in except for your obedience. So if conquering fear isn't up to me, how does that work? Great question. God fights your battles. You don't. In his way, according to his timing, and according to his will. Stand firm, fear not, and see. Those are three very, very strong words. But here's where we get this wrong. We charge ahead, or at least I charge ahead, in all courage and bravery, believing that we're right, never stopping to see if my self-appointed mission is God's will or not. Put another way, our faithlessness gets us into battles we should never fight, and then our selfishness begs God to bail us out. Here's the thing, God hasn't promised to win battles that he hasn't led you to. He hasn't promised victories in my life just because I think something is important. God wins battles and gets victories because he's concerned with one thing, his glory. God's motivation for rescuing and delivering his people from the Egyptians isn't their comfort. It isn't because they petitioned him so thoughtfully because they're a bunch of whiny babies who are basically accusing him or basically involved in heresy because they go, God, you forgot your promises. It would be better to die. But God does it anyway. At the shore of the Red Sea, he goes, for his glory. He is not on the hook for my unfulfilled wish list. So what am I supposed to do? Stand firm, fear not, see. Practically, here's what's true in my life, and I know it's true for everybody in this room. God is faithful to his people when we respond in obedience to what he has already shown us. He fights my battles, right? So when the temptation to click that link comes, remind yourself, God alone satisfies. God fights your battles. So when you're pulled to activate that ninth credit card, remind yourself, God alone provides. God fights my battles. So when I'm a discouraged parent, I preach to my faithless heart, he alone leads. God fights my battles. So when I want to prove myself to people, I preach to myself, God alone justifies You see what I did? I just replaced my wish list for me with God's wish list for me. 
The opposite of fear isn't courage from like some inner chutzpah or like some inner strength thing that we try and like muster up. The opposite of fear is rescue that comes from the hand of an almighty God when I obey his revealed will in my life. You know, there's only one verse in the Bible that talks about God's will, like explicitly. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, here it is. This is the will of God for you, colon, your sanctification. What's that mean? All God wants for you is to become a more Christ-like version of yourself. And as that happens, you will see his blessing in your life. So that's the fourth characteristic of a decisive faith. A decisive faith rejects fearful things. Last one before we close. A decisive faith recognizes eternal things. A decisive faith recognizes eternal things. Take a look in verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, if you thought putting a baby in a basket and sending him down a river is weird, this is even weirder. So what's happening here? Track with me. Just before they left Egypt, God warned Moses he's going to strike down the firstborn of all Egypt, and he wants his people to know that he will preserve them. Now, before we go any further, like, we got to sit on that for a second, because that is a stinking hard pill to swallow. Like, I, I don't like that. I go, like, what happened to my gracious God? Like, really? Like a whole country, God? Here's what's going on. Here's how we ought to think about this. Egyptian culture is completely based on power. It's why slavery was such a big deal in ancient Egypt. Power rested in birth order. So Pharaoh had to be a firstborn. Government officials and offices, all firstborn. This was the foundation of a centuries-long system of oppression for the poor and the weak and enabled slavery and death. And so God's action here is not to make people suffer as much as it is to send a message about the nature of power. This is a much larger message. Real power rests in me and me alone is what God's saying. I'm God, I'm sovereign, you don't get to oppress people. I don't give a rip about your birth order or your class structure or your social standing. That kind of objectifying of my image bearers does not happen. So here's how I reconcile this. The text does not give us a nice tidy answer and so I'm not gonna try and invent one. It just says God did it and so I'm content to leave it there. But God makes a way for his people. This is Exodus 12. I want to read you this part of the story. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb from their household. Your lamb should be without blemish. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentils of their houses. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I will see the blood, I will pass over you. So quick summary. Perfect, spotless lamb. Put its blood on your doorpost. That'll be a sign for me to protect you from death. Hold on to those three ideas for one minute. So that's the instruction, and it's something that God tells his people every family should do every year. 
But there's something really important theologically that's happening here. That word sign, this is really, really important. Where he says, this is going to be a sign for you. This is God taking that promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he's extending it into a new season of Israel's history. God says, I'm making a promise with you, and I'm not going to break it. Because I don't break my promises. The Old Testament word for that is covenant. I'm going to keep you, I'm going to protect you, guard you, guide you, and I will preserve you. This is a covenant. Hold on to that for 30 seconds. This lamb without blemish, a sacrifice that would keep God's people from death. So follow me. You know this points somewhere else, to someone else. During Passover, over a thousand years later, 12 men sit together in an upper room. They're in Jerusalem remembering and celebrating God's ancient victory. Their thoughts returning to the memories, the same stories they've been told since they were boys. And there, under the foot of another world power, Rome, this time, they're asking the same questions. Could he do it again? Has he forgotten? Is he still good to us? And then in the quiet night, with over a thousand years of history over his shoulder, a compelling carpenter's son turned rabbi raises his glass and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is Jesus saying, God's heart has always been for his people. He is working a rescue, and I am that rescue. The fifth and final characteristic of a decisive faith, a decisive faith recognizes eternal things. So what do we do with all this? It's a lot of information. So you go, okay, I hear you. This is all well and good. Give me a handle. Give me something I can actually do. So three commitments I want to call us to this morning. First, commit to feasting on the Bible. Seems like a strange first point. Here's what I mean. You'd be surprised how many times I hear questions like this. People say, you know, pastor, or I'm trying to find God's will for my life, and you won't believe what happened. I pulled out the Bible, I put it on my dining room table, I opened it, and there was the verse that I needed to make the decision. Okay, that's super dangerous, okay? I, I appreciate your inspiration and your positivity. Super dangerous. John Newton, who is the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, he was a pastor. Here's what he says. So good. He says, the word of God is not to be used as a lottery, nor is it designed to instruct us by shreds and scraps, which detached from their pro- proper places have no determinative import but it is to furnish us with just principles, right apprehensions, to regulate our judgments and affections, and thereby to influence and direct our conduct. Get it? Now, here's what he's saying. Don't play Russian roulette with the Bible. Don't do it. Quick question. What gave Moses the confidence to make the decision that he did? He knew God. He knew his character. He spent time with them so he could trust him. 
He had the cumulative effect of years of obedience to back up his direction. Good leaders and good decisions are like that. They are results of everything that's happened before. So here's a statement that you may not agree with, but I'm going to say it anyway. All you need to find the will of God for your life is the word of God open before you, the Holy Spirit within you, and a willing heart. That's really simplistic. But if people did that, you'd already be like way ahead of where most decisions are made. And if you're looking for ways to do that at the North Canton Chapel, get into a group. We've got men's and women's studies going on right now. We're gonna re-up again after the first of the year. The reason we have those here is because we believe this thing matters and how you wield it matters. And so we wanna help you do that. Get into a group. There's people at the Next Steps tables that would love to just talk with you about that after the service this morning, if that's next for you. Second commitment. Commit to feasting on the Bible. Commit to prayer. Commit to prayer. The reason why so many Christians are indecisive about God's will for their life isn't because God made his will a mystery. Okay, that's not his character. He doesn't hide stuff from his kids. The truth is much tougher to accept. It's because we are lazy, irresponsive, and stubborn. I don't want to be changed. I don't want to know your will for my life because it scares me. I like my stuff. I like my plan, God. I don't know if I want yours. Truth about me is I just don't want to be changed. And so committing to prayer means, God, till up the mud-caked soil of my heart so that I can receive your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit go forward to do everything you've called me to do. Wouldn't you love to know Moses' prayer life? We do. Psalm 90. He wrote Psalm 90. Here's a little bit of it. It's from the message. I want to read it to you. God, it seems like you've been our forever home long before the mountains were born, long before you brought the earth itself to birth. From once upon a time to kingdom come, you are God. So don't return us to mud, saying, go back where you came from. Oh, teach us to live wisely and well. Do you hear the pleading in there? Like, form me, form us. These are good prayers. Third commitment. Commit to feasting on the Bible, commit to prayer, Commit to small community. Commit to small community. That word small is very intentional. Here's something that's true of everybody in this room, regardless of where you are in your faith. Pride opposes repentance. Oil and water. Pride opposes repentance. Man, if somebody's coming at me and I think I'm right and they're coming at me like I'm wrong, I'm gonna dig my heels in. Why? Because we are all prideful people. And we need the gospel to get under that. Christians can be prideful. I know a few, starting right here. And were it not for the gospel, oh man, we'd be off the rails. You know the best way to kill pride in a church? Community. I am never more prideful when I'm alone, and I am never more humble when I'm with people who really know me. Not people who think they know me, people who really know me. And so that word small community... I've got two or three people that you've got to get around in your life. I've got three in my life that I have given carte blanche. Like, you can say whatever you want. When you see pride rearing its head in my life, I've given these men, all three of them, the authority to speak directly to me, and I don't question them because they love me and they love Jesus more importantly. 
Who are your two to three people? It can't be 800. Because you can't, there's not that many people who know you. Get in small community. Find them. They need to know you and love you, and they need to know and love Jesus. Don't wait for the church to provide them for you. Go get them. Moses had his, and if you're a better leader than Moses, maybe you don't need him. I know I'm not. So in closing, I want to point you to one question, just one. If you've been tracking with this series, you know where it's going. Do you know him? Not Moses. Do you know Jesus? God's ultimate rescue. Have you decided on him? Is he yours? A faith that makes a decision is a faith that makes a difference. So if you have, if you trust Jesus and you're in this room and you go, yep, I'm in. He's the boss of my life. Worship him. That's your role now. You are free to be worshipers. Worship him thankfully. Worship him as a hope that pharaohs can't hold back. A sea is nothing before this guy. And if you don't know him, what in the world are you waiting for? A faith that makes a decision is a life that makes a difference. Let me pray for us.